Parents know kids aren't just little adults. That's why I take mine to the one place with world-renowned doctors who treat children and only children. Boston Children's Hospital. See why U.S. News and World Report ranks us the number one pediatric hospital at bostonchildrens.org slash parents. From WBUR Boston and Slate, hello and welcome to The Checkup, our solidly reported and also somewhat opinionated take on health news you and your family can use. I'm Rachel Zimmerman, co-host of the Common Health blog at WBUR.org. And I'm Carrie Goldberg, also co-host of the Common Health blog. Hey, Carrie. Hey, Rachel. So today we're talking about muffin tops. Everyone knows the most delicious part of the muffin is the top. The muffin top is all that whole grain low fat. I know you want a piece of that, but I'm just here to dance. So Carrie, I assume you're not referring to the blueberry or bran kind here. No, no, no. And we'll be talking about other weighty issues here as well. Whether we're in a post-dieting era. And whether it's really worth it to stay thin. If it makes you crazy. (gasps) What happened to you? Do I look fat? Liz, it's like I flipped the eating switch and I can't flip it back. You have to help me. Oh, it's worse from behind. She needs to lose 30 pounds or gain 60. Anything in between has no place in television. So that's from an episode of 30 Rock, in which the very slim TV star Jenna suddenly gets fat and can't decide what to do about it. Right. She doesn't know what to do about it. And nobody really does. I mean, do you know any woman who doesn't have some kind of complicated or if not complicated, downright disordered relationship with food? Almost no one, Rachel. So all this does raise a very serious question, actually. It's what I call the Oprah question. Like, how many times can you gain and lose weight in one lifetime and trumpet it from the cover of your own magazine? Well, no. Well, yes, actually. But for me, I'd frame the Oprah question slightly differently. It's when a woman has all the positive qualities that she has, that it takes to rise from obscurity to being a media billionaire, how can it be that she still can't reach and stay at the weight she wants? Excellent question. If Oprah can't do it, how could any of us try, right? And you're asking this question for a reason, I assume. Well, yes. It's something Something I think about when I feel frustrated with myself and my muffin top or those last 10 pounds that I just can't drop. I just wonder, I can do so many other things. Why can't I lick this? Uh Aha. I think it's the very notion of licking it that is part (laughs) of the problem. I mean, I'm finally thin from an objective standpoint, but I still have food issues. And thin certainly does not solve all your problems. It may actually create other problems, but we will talk about that later. Okay, for now, let's talk about a tool for weight loss and other behavior change that's just hot, hot, hot in healthcare with hundreds of published studies over the last few years on using it. It's called motivational interviewing. Sounds very self-helpy. Well, actually, until now, it's been a method used mainly by professionals, especially addiction counselors and more and more by doctors. But there's a new book out called Finding Your Way to Change. That's the first book to officially offer motivational interviewing for readers to help themselves. Okay, but what is motivational interviewing? Yes, good question. I asked that new book's author, Alan Zukoff of the University of Pittsburgh, to finish this sentence. What if, instead of your doctor just telling you yet again to eat less and exercise more, fill in that blank? Uh, So it might begin with the doctor asking the patient, 
whether it's okay to spend a few minutes talking about a particular health behavior rather than just assuming that the patient is ready to talk about it. And after uh, assuming the patient agrees, which they usually do because they're pleasantly surprised that the doctor is asking, to ask the patient first, tell me a little bit about your diet. Tell me how things are going with exercise in your life and what that's been like for you. The style of MI is really to listen more than talk and to ask the patient to talk about their own challenges, their own frustrations, their own hopes and goals. And as the patient began talking, uh, the doctor would combine the use of uh, reflective listening, simply showing the patient that he or she is listening, and ask for elaboration and evocative questions that invite the patient to think about the benefits of change, about what gives them some confidence that they might be uh, able to make the change if they set their minds to it, to think about how their life would be different or better if they were to make that change and the, the value and the benefits that it would have for them. Uh, and by asking these kinds of questions and by reflecting and, and listening to what the patient is saying, the doctor is drawing out from the patient talk in favor of change. The big shift in the practice of MI for most practitioners is that you go from telling patients why they should change or how they could change to drawing out from the patient their own ideas about why change would be beneficial to them and about how they might be able to do it. Okay, it sounds like a lot of deep listening there. So how would you actually use motivational interviewing to lose weight? Well, for a taste of that, I turned to Dr. Joji Suzuki. He's the director of addiction psychiatry at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And he's trained probably thousands of people in motivational interviewing. And I asked him to give me just a flavor of what that could be like. You mentioned that you were working on uh, something you've been struggling with. Uh, about your weight. Tell me more about that. Yes. And really every day, like every single day I start out in the morning being very quote unquote virtuous and eating only healthy and moderate portions. And then by the end of the day, it all falls apart. So it sounds like you know what you're supposed to do. Eat well, exercise, but actually making that happen is not easy. I do exercise every single day, pretty much, and I feel great. I mean, I, I, now I would never want to do without it. But that's another thing that baffles me is, okay, so I could, I could conquer the exercise thing, but I can't conquer the food thing. Mm, so that's a piece that's really uh, difficult to change. The exercise, you're able to do it every day, but the food, that kind of sabotages everything else. Right, and I think that part of it is that um, exercise is a positive action that you can actually do. You get yourself to do it and then you're done. Whereas with eating, a lot of it is negative action. It's refraining Not doing from something. something. Yeah. And the temptations come, you know, minute by minute. Right. And that's a great point that with exercise, maybe as long as you find a way to get it done in a half hour, an hour, you get it done, you're good. But with the eating, you have to be consistently good. Right. You know, not just every, not just once a day, but multiple times a day, throughout the day, every time you have a temptation to snack or something, you have to be able to withhold that uh, behavior. Right. So what should I do? Well, if you were to lose weight, um, if you were to be, uh, you know, able to lose that winter, I forget how you put yeah, My muffin it. top. Your my muffin winter top. muffin top. Yes. How do you think you would be successful? Well... So I was successful once in the past. It was about five years ago. 
it was a combination of factors, I think. It was that I had written a book that was going to be on the Today Show, so I was facing a national TV appearance a few months out, and I went on Weight Watchers because mm. I was like super motivated. And so those together combined got me down to my ideal weight, but of course it didn't last at all. Yeah. Like it didn't. It lasted long enough for the Today yeah. Show, and then it was over, and then it all came right back on. But when you knew that you were going to be in a national spotlight on television, with a lot of attention paid on your appearance, that was a real big motivator for yeah. you. Yeah. But when that external motivation went away, you were no longer motivated to kind of maintain that. Right, because there was significant downside in doing Weight Watchers, which is that it's incredibly tedious in a way that yeah. I don't really like. That was a little too much for you. Yeah. Even at the time. And continuing now doesn't seem like it's possible. So back then, the reason for change was really about maybe the social aspects of your weight, how you'd be perceived by others. Now, would that be the same reasons for you to ch change now? Is that the, the same reason? Um. I would say yes, that it's really about appearance. Like, I don't think it's functional. I don't think it really makes much of a health difference. I really think it's just looking the way I want to look. Having that nice beach body. Yeah, you know, coming like up looking and great in clothes and yeah, right. Yeah, but that's, right. that's important to you, at least being, you know, sort of physically attractive and you know that's something that's that you value it's not even so much for others as for myself it's like looking in the mirror and saying oh you're not overweight you know you're and that's a that's a source of pride and a uh, sense of accomplishment for you yeah or just an aesthetic pleasure kind of okay like so you've done this before your reasons for why you want to change and, and and be able to lose that weight uh some of the strategies you've employed before you're not sure if you want to continue so what do you think it would take for you to be successful then? What would it take for you to actually lose that muffin top? <laughs> um, I guess, uh, well, I think it would take finding a way to manage the afternoons and evenings in a way that would keep me still eating moderately and healthily instead of binging. Mm -hmm. And what is it about the e the afternoons and evenings that make it make it challenging? I guess that I'm tired, and I, it feels like my willpower is tired, mm. and I have more cravings. I see. Okay. Uh -huh. So, yeah. so in your mind, you feel like you have these risky times that you have identified, and if you feel like if you manage those well, you might be successful. Yeah. So, Carrie, he never told you what to do. No, it was all about what I wanted to do. And he said if we'd kept going, he would have tried to evoke more concrete planning from me for what I would do. For example, to manage afternoon and evening cravings. And you actually seem to be kind of getting into it. Well, I mean, who doesn't like talking about themselves, right? Well, yes, but, but, but it was it was shockingly pleasant. There's like something about having a real authority, a doctor who's so in your court. Did it work? Well, it was only a few days ago. And of course, there are other factors at work, like I've had a cold and I can't taste anything. But the muffin top definitely has deflated a bit. And Alan Zukov says even very quick sessions can have an effect. You don't have to do long therapy conversations with people when you're doing MI. Because MI can be done in a 10-minute conversation, it's adaptable to healthcare context. MI has been done in emergency rooms. The physician is stitching up the patient and at the same time having a five-minute conversation about seatbelt use or about alcohol use related to drinking. 
it is that flexible and adaptable, I think, that, that's given it a great deal of appeal in, in the medical world. Fast-acting effect to boot. Goodbye, muffin top. Mm-hmm. So if you notice that your doctor, instead of just telling you to lose weight and exercise more, is asking you how you'd feel about that, chances are they've had some motivational interviewing training. Could be. And those chances are growing all the time as it spreads through the medical world. Well, Carrie, all this makes me wonder whether we're entering a sort of post-dieting moment in history where the thinking about weight loss has broadened and it's not just about any particular diet. It's not about paleo or Atkins (laughs) or a juice cleanse or my old favorite from the 70s, the grapefruit diet. (laughs) The grapefruits. But more about really altering your life habits slowly over time and the way you think about food. Right, absolutely. And that's an interesting concept, a post-diet world, but I'm really not sure we're there yet. I mean, just think about how many people in your own social circle alone are currently on some kind of diet. Hey, Jenna, what's up? Pretty good. Are you okay? Oh, I'm fine, Jenna. I'm just a little lightheaded. I'm on a crash diet to get back to my old weight by Friday. Well, what diet is going to do that? Oh, it's the Japanese porn star diet. I only eat paper, but I can eat all the paper I want, so... <laughs> it's true. The fad diets do come and go. But then there's Weight Watchers, the mother of all diet oh, plans. Yes. Been there, done, done that. that. I think everyone knows someone who's been there. Recently, a co-founder of Weight Watchers, Gene Nidich, died, and it got me wondering about the rigid nature of Weight Watchers and whether it truly still works for people. Well, it definitely works for some people, the whole point system, the group meetings. Right. But I still think there's something about diets and our thinking about weight loss and health in general that's evolved. Now, Jean Fain, a Boston therapist who specializes in eating disorders, says that Weight Watchers may have inadvertently hurt overweight people who are struggling to shed pounds. It hasn't changed, really. Everyone I know is still on it. Right. (laughs) They sing its praises. They say it's a lot more flexible than the old Weight Watchers. You can have whatever you want. It's not really a diet. But in fact, you're still focused on weight loss, and there is a mentality that goes with that that makes people want to restrict either particular foods or calories or both, even if you call it points. And that mentality and that eating behavior sets people up for the very kinds of eating problems that they're trying to avoid. Like, this is bad food, this is good food, Mm -hmm. I'm bad if I eat bad food, that sort of thinking. Is that what you're talking about? Exactly. And once you're bad, you might as well be really Really, really bad. Right, right. Yes. Then go wild bad. Yes. Yeah. And that keeps you trapped in this vicious cycle of dieting and overeating and dieting and overeating. And people do lose weight in the short term if they're able to stick to it. But then they typically regain what they've lost, if not more. Right. So people are committed to this Weight Watchers system almost in a religious way. What are some of the overall numbers in terms of success? One of the spokespersons was claiming that Weight Watchers' success rate is 16%, and there was a YouTube video with that number in it. Then somehow that video disappeared when the research started coming out comparing the different diets. And in fact, Weight Watchers is no more successful than any other diet, which puts it more like 5% of its members lose weight and keep it off. Right. So... Are we in a post-Weight Watchers era? I mean, are people more 
holistic about weight loss, or are we still locked into now I'm on the grapefruit diet, now mm-hmm. I'm on a juice cleanse, now I'm on Atkins, now I am on paleo, just like this mm-hmm. diet hopping phenomenon? You know, the diet hopping is still happening. A few people have gotten off the treadmill and actually have embraced healthy eating and positive lifestyle changes. But Almost all my clients, when they first walk in the door, are still on diets, and almost all my relatives and friends are still on diets. So I don't think we're at the post-diet era, not even close. So you basically think diets don't work. Is that true? They work in the short term, but I don't think that's why people go on diets. They don't want to just lose weight and regain it. If you want to sustain healthy eating habits and get to your natural, comfortable weight, diets are not the way to go. They backfire big time. So you reviewed a book by Tracy Mann called Secrets from the Eating Lab. Mm -hmm. What does she say about how diets don't work? She says that if you want to lose a significant amount of weight and keep it off— Diets are not the way to go because people do regain it. All her research has shown that, and she's been researching this for 20 years. And they also are not helpful for health and well-being. I mean, you can get healthy and feel really good without a diet, so they're unnecessary. Those are her two main points. And she talks about it being deeply embedded in the brain. Like mm. there's genetics, there's mm-hmm. neuroscience. Yes. What else is Body driving and all mind this? are hardwired to eat, to survive. This is important. This is good news. We want to eat and survive. And to fight that biology and psychology, it's going to stress you out. Stress actually facilitates weight gain, not weight loss. And it does a lot of other things to your eating, which aren't all that healthy. So what works? Generally, feeding yourself, nourishing your body, moving your body with physical activity that you really enjoy, taking good care of yourself. And under that umbrella is self-compassion. Most diets revolve around self-discipline, neglect, and deprivation, which is no way to go because it's not— You can't live that way. No. Right. But the missing ingredient in every diet and most other weight loss plans is self-compassion, treating yourself like a friend or a loved one with care and concern. And that's what I see really changes people in the long run. So the whole punishment and reward system is so stressful, it might even backfire. And what Jean Fain is saying is that we really have to just cut ourselves some slack. Exactly. And now we have to cut to mention our sponsor. When our son broke his arm, we didn't think he needed special attention. I didn't when I broke mine. But it was easy to see a doctor at Boston Children's Hospital, so we went. They noticed the break was on his growth plate. That meant a little fracture could have been a lot more serious. Now we wouldn't take him anywhere else. No matter what it is, simple or not so simple. Because nothing's more important to us than getting our kid back to being a kid again. See why U.S. News and World Report ranks Boston Children's Hospital the number one pediatric hospital at bostonchildrens.org slash parents. So, Carrie, let's face it. Being fat is still viewed in many ways as a moral failing, right? Just suck it up and harness that willpower and you can do it. Yeah, I think a lot of people do still blame, and please note my change in language here, the people who have obesity. And they interpret thin as conveying status and self-control. But let's shift to you, Rachel. You've talked about being a kind of a chunky kid. And now I'm sure most people would consider you quite thin and petite. 
sweet. It's true. I was a little on the zoftic side as a child and kind of chunky growing up. But now I'm actually thin. It's weird to say, but it's true. It definitely is true. Yeah, people say I look good. I fit into my 12-year-old's clothes. But there has been a cost. Well, what's the cost? And can I afford it? (laughs) Well, Carrie, this is something I've struggled with for years. And it's a little embarrassing because it's such a sort of self-absorbed kind of problem. But I spend a huge amount of time thinking about food, planning what I'm going to eat, strategizing basically about how to keep my weight under control. It's on my mind pretty much every waking hour of every day, and the details are, frankly, boring. How many pumpkin seeds in my nonfat yogurt, or will a green smoothie make me gain weight, or how can I manage to eat really early so when I weigh myself the next morning, the scale will be really low. Yeah, so obsessive, really. Uh, I think that's fair, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, then there's exercise. I If I don't exercise every single day, I get depressed. And as we talk about Weight Watchers, I've kind of internalized that Weight Watchers system. Mm-hmm. If I lose a few ounces, I give myself a big round of applause. And if I gain half an ounce, I hunker down and set up my plan to fix it that day. Obviously, this is a first world problem, Mm -hmm. but... I've heard you call it your food prison, Rachel, but I know you're not alone. Well, that's true. A recent report on women and body image conducted by eating disorder experts at the University of North Carolina found that only about 12% of middle-aged women are satisfied with their body size. Wow. You'd think we'd be old enough to, like, be over it. Exactly, exactly. And... What's even worse is that even women who are sort of content with their weight are fixated and troubled by specific body parts. So like 56% don't like their stomachs and many dislike their skin or their faces or muffin top as an example. <laughs> there you go. It's like that Nora Ephron book about hating her neck or that crazy thigh gap thing that some younger women do where they strive to have a space between their thighs right. when their legs are together. arbitrary parts of their body. It definitely seems obsessive. And as you said, here we are in middle age. We should be, you know, happy about our work and our kids. And to be and alive. <laughs> to be alive and have perspective. But here we are obsessing about our hips and our post-childbirth bellies. Yeah, but you wonder, I mean, maybe that's just the true cost of staying thin. Like we do know from research that people who tend to lose a lot of weight and keep it off generally do remain vigilant just in the way that you're describing to the point of obsessive. They're always on guard. There was even a story a while back in the New York Times about the people who successfully lose weight and keep it off. They are paying attention to every calorie. They spend an hour a day on exercise. They never don't think about their weight. Right. That just sounds so familiar, Carrie. But I actually have to add one thing here, which is, you know, sometimes major life events hit you. You get a moment of perspective and you suddenly feel like, wow, who cares about carbs when there's a real problem in your life? But I have to say that the food thing never completely goes away. Wow. So but you have been able to give up a little of the rigidity, right? I think that's true. And one thing that's really helped is thinking about my daughter's. I would never want them stuck in my crazy food prison. So I've thought about modeling a little bit less obsessive behavior around them. And if my kid was doing this, would I try to stop it? And when the answer is yes, I try to stop it in myself. Mm -hmm. When I wrote about this for the Common Health blog a while back, I spoke with Emily Sandoz, a clinical psychologist, and she studies what she calls body image inflexibility. Hmm. 
Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Sandoz reminded me of something that may be fairly obvious, but it was worth her saying, which is, I am the warden of the food prison <laughs> that I've locked myself in. And, you know, we do have some control. And she said, you are never trapped. You have the keys to the prison. But sometimes having a choice is scarier than not having a choice. And sometimes the food prison, with its rigidity and mm. its rules... That's cozier than the big wide world where I, you know, could bulge or break out or wrinkle or make a bad decision at any time. And she said, what's it worth to you letting yourself out of this prison? What matters more than the high of being thin? What do you want people to remember about the life you live? Do they care if you're 99 or 100 pounds? Probably not. Probably not. So it's that perspective again. And maybe me losing these last 10 pounds is not, in fact, the most important thing in the world. Uh, Maybe not. Mm -hmm. Sandoz told me just about the time she finished her book on this topic, she was doing yoga and took a look at her leg. And she said, I suddenly became aware that it was holding all of my weight and that the muscles were doing exactly what they should be doing. And my shin and my thigh came together at my knee exactly as it has to, to work in a way that carries me around the world. And I felt appreciation. That's lovely. Yeah, it was just like a moment of acknowledgement of the strength that our bodies have. And it's not about the number. It's more about being strong and healthy and solid. And what our bodies are actually for. Exactly. So that makes me want to just love and embrace my little muffin top. There you go. Or at least not hate it. I mean, it is kind of (laughs) cute. I'm keeping it. What? The fat. I've decided to keep it because people recognize me and I get off on it. No, if you're going to do this, it's got to be because we are proving a point to the world. It's kind of hard to take life advice from a single woman who is using her treadmill as a hanger for a wedding dress. Oh, I guess I'm just supposed to put it in the closet with ham fat all over it? (laughs) Okay, Rachel, I think that's enough. Definitely enough about my muffin (laughs) (laughs) The Checkup is produced at WBUR, Boston's NPR news station, by George Hicks, who also composed and performed our theme music. The executive editor of WBUR Podcasts is Iris Adler. Andy Bowers and Joel Meyer run Slate Podcasts. I'm Rachel Zimmerman. And I'm Carrie Goldberg. See you next time. See you, Carrie. See you, Rachel.